0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's BYTE.com. That's B Y T E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with BYTE. This Week in China's History, The Monk Who Believed Buddhism Could Save China. Published in Sub China March 31st, 2021, by James Carter. Read by James Carter. This week in China's History, April 1st, 1949. On the morning of April 1, 1949, a Buddhist monk nearing 80 years old boarded an American transport plane in the city of Qingdao. It was the first time he had ever been on a plane, though he had traveled widely in China for decades and even visited Japan in the 1930s. Flying wasn't his first choice, but for Tan Shu, time and space were both running out. The train lines were all blocked by advancing communist armies and the American marines that were still occupying the city were making plans to leave. It was time to get out, quickly. Tanshu had good reason to fear for his safety if Qingdao fell to the communists. Japanese armies had captured Qingdao in the summer of 1937, and Tanshu had operated its largest Buddhist temple, when he had founded, for the duration of the war. The monk denied having worked with the Japanese, but he clearly did not actively resist the occupiers, Charges of collaboration would be especially hard to stave off, and neither clerics nor collaborators, passive or not, had good prospects under a communist government. The charge of treason would have devastated a man who had worked for so long to strengthen China. The political landscape of early 20th century China is filled with reformers and revolutionaries, reactionaries and traditionalists, but Tan Shu fits none of these categories easily. He was without doubt a nationalist, but in no way a modernizer. He championed traditional Chinese values, but was never a xenophobe. His story fills in a large portion of the canvas of modern China that is left blank when we focus on the main political parties and their enemies. I told Tan Tanshu's story in my book, Heart of Buddha, Heart of China, and though what attracted me to it at first was the plot, narrow escapes, war, betrayal, river pirates, ghosts, even an audience with the king of hell, What made the biography significant was his role in the intellectual debates of the time. I first crossed his path in Harbin, where he founded a Buddhist temple in the 1920s at the invitation of city officials who wanted to define a Chinese Harbin in contrast with the Russian one that had gone before. As he put it in his memoir, Chinese and foreign elements mixed freely. At the beginning of the Republican era, other religions flourished, but regretfully, even though Harbin was a Chinese place, There was absolutely no Chinese Buddhism, not even a single decent temple. It was very embarrassing, too depressing to bear. Tan Xu's belief that China needed strengthening had begun long before he was known by that name. Raised as Wang Futing in the coastal regions near Tianjin, he had traveled for his family business trading tobacco across and along the Bohai Gulf, the first Sino-Japanese war and the Eight-Nation Alliance intervention following the Boxer Uprising had convinced him that China needed greater technical skill and stronger moral foundations to resist its enemies. The Russo-Japanese War that followed went a step further. China was not even a participant, but could not stop foreign powers from fighting over who would get China's territory. Plenty of young Chinese saw the same thing and reached the same conclusion that China needed to be stronger. But Tan Shu followed the path of neither nationalists like Sun Yat-sen, who advocated Republican government, nor radicals like Chen Duxio, and later Mao Zedong, who turned to socialism as a solution to imperialism, nor some in the Qing court who wanted to retreat into tradition. Tan Chu saw in China's Western and Japanese enemies a moral and technological strength worth emulating. He supported the efforts of officials who embraced technical advancement, but his concern was China's soul. He had tried Taoism and Confucianism, even Christianity, But by the time the Qing Dynasty fell, he had settled on Buddhism as the solution China needed. In North China, especially, Buddhism had fallen into disrepair, and he set out to renew it. Tanshu was invited by officials in other cities to reprise the patriotic project of his temple in Harbin. Yinghou, Shenyang, Changchun, his most ambitious project came in one of China's most famous former colonies, Qingdao. German imperialists had taken the city as retribution for the murder of two priests, And had gone about reproducing Franconia in Shandong, complete with imported hops and a brewery that still stands. The city had passed from Germany to Japan and then back to China, but when Tanshu arrived in the early 1930s, it still resembled a European city more than a Chinese one. Tanshu's Janshan Temple, high on a ridge overlooking the city and Zhaozhou Bay, marked it as a Chinese place. A Chinese place for a few years, anyway. In 1937, the new but thriving temple came under Japanese control, though it continued to function. Liberated in 1945, Janshan Temple had barely recovered from occupation before the next round of war closed in. Tanshu had survived foreign armies, warlords, famine, and flood, but in the spring of 1949, his advisors convinced him to flee. The DC-3 took off from Qingdao and landed in Shanghai where Tan Xu stayed a few days in the convulsing city vividly described by Helen Zia in her book Last Boat Out of Shanghai. Then, on April 4th, another flight left Hongqiao Airport and navigated the notorious approach to Kai Tak Airport in Hong Kong. There, Tan Xu continued the same work he had managed for decades in a different guise. The temple he founded in Hong Kong was far from the city center at Clearwater Bay in the New Territories. More important was the Chinese Buddhist library he built on Boundary Road, where he pursued the same attempt to promote and revive the Chinese nation, but this time against Chinese invaders. With the fate of Buddhism uncertain under communist rule, Tan Xu collected Buddhist texts from across the country, building a collection that was essential to the persistence of the faith and establishing Hong Kong as an ever more important Buddhist center. Tan Xu died in 1966. So he was spared from seeing Buddhism and Buddhist relics desecrated in the mainland during the Cultural Revolution. The People's Republic would eventually achieve the strength Tan Shu had wanted China to have, but at the cost of its heart. Tan Shu's remains were interred overlooking the South China Sea, but now, as Hong Kong's place as a stronghold of traditional Chinese culture becomes ever more fragile threatened by the communist government Tanshu had fled decades ago, I sometimes wonder how the view would seem to him now.